Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. This week, I'm asking the question that should be at the forefront of everyone's minds right now. What the fuck is going on at Fort Hood? If that's not something you're asking yourself, then buckle up. Because the story of Fort Hood and the stories of the other soldiers who have wound up dead on or near the base under mysterious circumstances since March of this year, and that number is 10, well, today's story really is about to get dark as hell. Honestly, when I first decided to switch course midweek and cover Fort Hood, I was nervous. I know what a delicate and hot topic discussing the military can become, and I'm very much aware that this is an episode that might not go over well with some because it'll be seen as a liberal critique, or I'm unnecessarily politicizing the show, or it'll be categorized along with any number of perceived slights against the military. This, today's episode, is not that, and it's not about any of that either. The fact of the matter is, American soldiers are inexplicably dying in droves on one of the largest bases in our country, and for several of those deaths, we don't know why. That is the basis of today's case. My friend Shannon put it best. One is horrible. Two is eerie. Three is a pattern. And ten? Ten soldiers who wind up dead under mysterious circumstances in five months that's willful ignorance. So, as always, let's get ready to get dark as hell. discussing the disappearances and deaths that have taken place since March, I want to drop the mother of all trigger warnings right now. We're going to be talking about upsetting subjects for some, including sexual assault, violence in general, and a few mentions of death by suicide. Please take care of yourself while listening to this episode because I know it's not a light one. Something about military life I want to make clear from the jump. There's absolutely no way to anonymously submit a complaint against another person in the army. If there is, I hope somebody can elucidate me to one because, as my research showed, superior or not, if you want to file a report of a criminal nature, which includes sexual misconduct, your name, any identifying factors, and consequently, your chances for promotion, transfer, etc., all go with it. The Army, at least in this case, is dedicated to creating a well-documented paper trail. I think that probably has a lot to do with the incidents I'm going to talk about today. The opportunity for someone to act out in retaliation seems so, so high given that factor, and given the hierarchy system that's the foundation of the military across the board, it makes sense that anyone facing harassment or pressure or threats of any kind would be hard fucking pressed to report up about it, which is exactly what the data seems to report. According to the Protect Our Defenders movement, 2,500 service members were sexually assaulted or raped in the fiscal year of 2018. 
24% of women that did report harassment and assault stated that they were assaulted by someone in their chain of command. It's important and entirely unnerving to note that one in three women who serve in the military will be raped during their time serving. All that said, 76.1% of victims did not report sexual abuse, harassment, or assault, probably because one-third of victims who did report found themselves discharged from service, typically within seven months of making the report. In that same fiscal year, 2018, one out of four victims who did not report their sexual assault stated that they feared retaliation from their command and co-workers, which led to them not reporting. The Army created an organization within itself called SHARP, Sexual Harassment and Rape Prevention, to try and address the problem. And they did this in 2006. That group allegedly has response coordinators and victim advocates, uniformed and civilian, at what's supposed to be every level of command, who are part of the annual training that pretty much everyone is supposed to receive on how to prevent, address, and respond to sexual harassment and assault situations. 11 years after SHARP was created in 2015, a first sergeant by the name of Gregory McQueen was serving as battalion representative on that same task force to prevent sexual harassment at, you guessed it, Fort Hood. And it was in that same year, the Dallas News reports, that McQueen was accused of recruiting cash-strapped female soldiers to have sex with higher-ranking officers. According to the court-martial, he preyed on younger service members, and particularly ones in vulnerable situations, like one private who confided in him that, as a single mother, she was struggling to provide for her infant son. It's said that he approached them carefully, testing their receptiveness to prostitution by telling that they could make easy money, providing what he called, quote, tension relief to other soldiers. Again, the Dallas News reports that McQueen continued to groom potential recruits himself, asking one to show him how she would seduce a man and getting them to send him pictures of themselves in lingerie, which he would then use to lure potential customers. Eventually, McQueen was charged and pleaded guilty to more than a dozen military charges for attempting to run a prostitution ring in Fort Hood. He was stripped of that shiny first sergeant title and the accompanying pension, and he was dishonorably discharged. It's interesting to note then that in 2017, McQueen and his wife were approved to be foster parents for some of the most vulnerable children in the Texas foster care system. It took three months for the mistake to be unearthed, and only then did the Army admit that they had, quote, failed to submit information about McQueen's criminal arrest record to an FBI database widely used for background checks. So much for well-documented paper trails. It also begs the question, what else is the Army, quote, failing to submit when it comes to incidents like these? What isn't being reported? There have been more sexually violent scandals throughout the entire military than I can count on one hand. Just a few to mention, there was the tailhook scandal in 91, where Marine aviation officers allegedly assaulted up to 63 women and seven men during a convention in Vegas. There was the Aberdeen scandal in 96, where 12 drill instructors were charged with sex crimes. The Air Force Academy sexual assault scandal in 03, where 70% of the 659 women enrolled at the time claimed that they had been sexually harassed 
and the academy leadership had done nothing to help them. And so too was the Air Force basic training program at Lackland. That also came under scrutiny when 43 women trainees would come forward with accounts of sexual misconduct and harassment that had first started in 2011. Hell, on March 13th and 14th of this year, a sex trafficking and prostitution ring was broken up during a two-day sting. Out of the 12 people arrested, six of the Johns were active duty Fort Hood soldiers. This type of behavior is rampant, like I said, throughout the entire military, Army, Air Force, Coast Guard, Navy, and it's been going on for years. There's another thing I want to make clear. I have great respect for our military. I come from a military family. My maternal grandfather served in World War II, as did several of my great uncles. We have lots of love for the Navy on my paternal side, thanks to the service of my cousins. And I have paternal uncles who served in the Army as well. I am aware of and grateful for the sacrifices that those who choose military life make. We need to discuss what's happening at Fort Hood, though, because we owe it to those who dedicate their lives to military service, to those who happen to find themselves assigned to Fort Hood. American service members face enough dangers in their line of duty as it is. Being assigned to a particular base on our own soil shouldn't be another. The Great Place is a nickname that's been associated with Fort Hood for quite some time. And being who I am, I have to ask, one, how outdated is that nickname? And two, was it in fact started by the Army's PR department? Because I know I found some materials stemming that this moniker may have ties back to the Public Affairs Office of Fort Hood. It's been nicknamed such because it allegedly is a great place to live. The area is said to offer a lot of wonderful benefits to both the soldiers stationed there and their families. Fort Hood also helps the local community as well. The figure that I found said that about 8,900 civilians work on Fort Hood alongside the service members there. In terms of location, the base sits equidistantly smack dab between Austin and Waco, and don't even get me started on the Waco and the weirdness. Today, Fort Hood in its entirety covers just under 215,000 acres. So it's no wonder that it's one of the largest military bases we have in the country. And it's actually also one of the largest in the world by sheer area. It was first opened for operations in 1942, so the military could test and train with tank destroyers, if you need even more of a visual image for how big this place has always been. According to the last census in 2010, there were 53,416 people living in the main military quarters of Fort Hood itself, making it the most populous American military base in the world. As all things are in Texas, they are big. So needless to say, Fort Hood is fucking big. Despite its attempt at a sunny sounding nickname, a cloud has hung over Fort Hood for the last several years. There have been a number of violent events and strange incidents, some explained and some simply not. On November 5th, 2009, an Army Medical Corps psychiatrist, Nadal Malik Hassan, went on a shooting rampage in a center on base for processing soon-to-be-deployed soldiers that ended up killing 13 and injuring 32 others. It was said that in the time leading up to the shooting, the unmarried Hassan was known to be a bit of a recluse. He was socially isolated and didn't have many friends. He was often stressed about the psychiatric counseling work he oversaw with soldiers returning from war. 
and according to NPR, he was allegedly especially unnerved by the accounts his patients would share with him about their time on the ground of the front lines. He himself was assigned for a deployment for Afghanistan that was due to leave on November 28th, just weeks before he went on his rampage. Hassan was tried and convicted on 13 counts of premeditated murder and 32 counts of attempted murder. The premeditation coming into play because Hassan had purchased a gun quite a while before the attack, and it's believed that his motive was his personal opposition to being deployed. Another sign that something had been afoot? Days before the attack, Hassan began giving away his possessions to neighbors. All of these red flags and signs that something was wrong with a fellow psychiatrist, yet none of his colleagues working with him claimed to notice them. Five years later, on April 2nd, 2014, specialist Ivan Lopez got into an argument at the Transportation Battalion Administrative Office. He was trying to secure a 10-day leave to deal with, as he put it, quote, family matters. However, the on-duty employees told him that he would have to come back later. There was arguing, and then other soldiers in the office got in on the arguing, and finally Lopez left in a huff. Now, it should be noted that Lopez was going through it at the time. He was dealing with some financial issues, and there had been two major deaths in his family, his grandfather and mother, within two months of each other, just a few months before April 2014. It's been reported that he was, quote, undergoing regular psychiatric treatment for depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. In any regard, after leaving the administrative office, Lopez smoked a cigarette, and at about 4 p.m., he went back to the office and opened fire with his own pistol that he had on his person thanks to concealed carry laws. But he didn't just stick to the office. Lopez went on a shooting spree throughout the entire base. He literally got into his car after shooting three people in the transportation office, one who later died, and drove throughout Fort Hood, stopping at various other buildings, shooting at people on the street, and even killed an officer who tried to talk him down at one point. At the end of his rampage, Lopez had wounded 14 people, killed three, and then turned his gun on himself. However, in January 2015, after the Army conducted their investigation, they claimed that, quote, Lopez's commanders knew very little of his personal difficulties and would have provided him with help had he disclosed these difficulties. If this sounds a fuck of a lot like blaming somebody who's mentally unstable, I'm pretty sure that that's what this is. If a military personnel is undergoing regular psychiatric treatment, I would assume that that's something disclosed in medical and personnel records. Obviously, I'm a civilian and I don't know the extent to which particular information is determined, need to know, and disseminated on behalf of a service member. So I'm curious about how much an important detail the fact that Lopez was being treated for at least three mental health issues, how wasn't it disclosed to his supervisors? It's especially noteworthy because after the 2019 shooting, this exact issue had been brought up by investigators, quote, Information sharing regarding medical history was among 78 recommendations suggested to identify the risk of violent behavior. However, this recommendation was not implemented due to, quote, constraints on exchanging information between military and civilian behavioral health care providers. I don't know where the line is drawn between medical confidentiality when it comes to military matters, 
but it's something I think that needs to be more clearly defined so proper steps at curtailing these events can be implemented. Needless to say, there's a history and a track record of violence at Fort Hood. On top of the violence, though, there's also almost a shadow of strangeness and just generally weird things happening. For instance, take the death of Sergeant Lawrence Sprader back in 2007. Sergeant Sprader had just returned from Afghanistan in September of 06, and he was assigned to work in the Criminal Investigation Division at Fort Hood upon his return. In June of that year, he died during a land navigation test that was supposed to take three hours. Instead, it took over 3,000 people more than three days to find him. Sprayer 320 other officers set out on an exercise designed to test their land navigation and map comprehension skills on a Friday afternoon. Like I said, it was only supposed to be a three-hour affair, and at the end of it, the officers would have all made it back to a checkpoint to complete it. Nine other officers also got lost during the exercise, but they were able to find their way to the rally point, as it was called, by following a siren that's used to reorient anyone who is lost and to also signal them when time for the exercise is up. This wasn't the case with Sprayder. By the end of the day on Friday, higher ups in the chain of command allegedly reached him by his cell phone to basically ask what was going on and if he was okay. They claimed that he sounded normal by all accounts and stated that he still wanted to finish the exercise. This account differs from what Chris Sprader, Lawrence's brother, later told NPR. Initially, the family was told that Lawrence sounded distressed when he was reached on Friday night. Locals later came forward after the fact to tell Army officials that there had been two sightings of Sprader, quote, one on the eastern edge of the post and another on the far northern edge. A spokeswoman for the Army claims that these reports made the search for Sprader harder since they couldn't nail down an exact location to focus the search. The same spokeswoman would later state that no soldier had ever been lost on the range, which was used frequently for such a period of time or with such a massive search effort. Also kind of weird, when Sprader's body was found the following Tuesday on June 12th, Robert Volk, Fort Hood's chief game warden, stated that not only was his body found near plenty of drinking water from creeks, hell, his body was found only half a mile from one, but that he also had been equipped with two canteens and a water backpack. At least one canteen is said to have still been full by the time he was discovered. That's weird and interesting to note because even, maybe especially with that knowledge, when the autopsy report came back, it stated that Sprater died of hyperthermia, which is not hard to believe given it was June in Texas, but that he had also died of dehydration. In the resulting years, six officers would be quote, disciplined as a result of Sprater's death. The incident obviously called for an investigation and one was held. The results found that quote, academy leaders failed to adequately monitor the heat index before and during the exercise as required by army policy. It also said leaders did not adequately patrol the course or provide enough water for soldiers, and that disorganization and delays hampered the search. Sprayer's death absolutely could have been avoided, and while certain details of it might raise a bit of a conspiratorial eyebrow, did his position on the Criminal Investigation Division have anything to do with this? Why was he found with a canteen of water, yet died of dehydration? 
Was he really fine when he spoke with his commanders on Friday? Or was he distressed, like the family claims that they were told? Why did it take so long to get the proper search going? All of these questions can and should be asked, but I think it points to a larger, more encompassing issue at Fort Hood. Even back in 2007, things weren't being overseen correctly, and soldiers were dying for it. And now, in 2020, we have a verifiable pile of soldiers' bodies who have disappeared for months on end, only to be found in shallow graves, under unexplained circumstances, or in the case of the most recent body found, swinging from a tree. In my initial research into Fort Hood, it was impossible not to notice a trend while scouring the internet. No matter what I was looking into, almost every search included at least a handful of Reddit threads from people either heading to Fort Hood or speaking about their time and experiences on base. Obviously, they're not the most verifiable resource considering the anonymity that Reddit offers its users, but there was a common thread throughout most of them that, like I said, I couldn't ignore. Get out as fast as you can. One post by a Reddit user just last month questioned the Army subreddit. How bad is Fort Hood? They explained that they were assigned to ship out to Fort Hood in a few months, that they'd always tried to keep an open mind even when stationed at less than ideal bases before, but the stories about Fort Hood were enough to make them wonder just what they were getting into, especially because the stories coming out of the great place seemed to paint Fort Hood in a light that was anything but. One former Fort Hood resident commented first, quote, Hood is pretty terrible, dude. I'm not gonna sugarcoat that. It's bad. The immediate area around it is equally bad. Every single chance you get, get the fuck away from post. Another resident who claims that they've been at Fort Hood for three years as of last month wrote this, quote, there has been a motorcycle theft ring, two busted sex trafficking rings, about 20 soldiers that have died in training that I've heard about, at least one soldier per month die from traffic fatalities. Combine that with constant suicides, unreasonable leadership, and a mentality of everyone constantly dropping packets to get out of there, and you almost have an idea of what Fort Hood is like. Still another Fort Hood familiar Redditor wrote, quote, here is my elevator pitch for Fort Hood. It is the perfect storm for the U.S. Army. I think the comment that unnerved me the most, though, was this one. This person shared that, quote, when I was coming back to Hood from Afghanistan, I cried because I didn't want to go back. Afghanistan was safer in a way. Those are only a few of the allegedly first-person accounts I stumbled upon in my research, and if they're to be believed, it paints a pretty dire image of the largest military base in the country. And it's starting to have what feels like the largest body count of active duty soldiers in the country too. Another thing I feel like I need to point out, in 2018, after the unexplained deaths of four soldiers throughout the month of March, and all of them unrelated, it should be noted, for reasons that haven't been specified, Fort Hood stopped issuing press releases notifying the public of the death of a soldier. With that in mind, I have to say what feels like a constant refrain. What the fuck is going on at Fort Hood? Now, specialist Vanessa Guillen's murder really brought the national spotlight onto everything that's happening at Fort Hood. But 
I want to share with you what we know about a number of the Fort Hood soldiers who have wound up dead this year. And honestly, that's a terrifying phrase to say because it's terrifying that there are so many of them. As of the time of writing this, there have been 24 soldiers who have disappeared, been found dead, were killed, or otherwise died under mysterious circumstances this year alone. And I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you at least a little bit about each of them. The website Military Justice for All put together a timeline of the soldiers who have died while serving at Fort Hood and in the surrounding area this year. So let's start at the beginning. On February 1st, two soldiers, Private Eric Hogan, who was 19, and Private Anthony Peak, who was 21, died in a two-car crash on SH-195 Highway. Now, this might not seem all that strange, but the authorities themselves haven't been able to determine what caused the crash. CBS Austin reported that, quote, the car, for unknown reasons, traveled off the left side of the highway, crossed the grassy median, and struck a 2004 Hyundai Elantra traveling northbound. Like I said, to this day, we don't know what caused that. On March 1st, 20-year-old specialist Shelby Tyler Jones was shot at a strip club in the town of Killeen. The weird thing here especially is that he didn't die at the strip club. He was found outside of a local convenience store, one that was half a mile from the strip club in question. Authorities have no idea what caused the shooting or how Jones made it from the strip club to the convenience store, or rather, who dumped him there. No arrests have been made. Four days later, on March 5th, two soldiers were found dead on base, 29-year-old Specialist Christopher Sawyer and 24-year-old Sergeant Raul Torres. These deaths have simply been classified as, quote, found unresponsive and, quote, passed away respectively. Both of their causes of death are unknown, and like, I'm sorry, I think these types of Fort Hood deaths are the ones that seriously unnerve me the most. Two 20-something guys in what we can assume would be good health, given that they were military, just dropped dead on the same day, and we still don't know why or what happened? Nine days later, on March 14th, another pair of soldiers were found dead in another unsolved homicide. Both 23 Specialist Freddy De La Cruz Jr. and veteran Shaquan Allred were found dead from gunshot wounds in an apartment in Killeen. Once again, police and other investigators have no idea what led to the shootings. On March 20th, 34-year-old Fort Hood veteran Brandon Brown was found dead in his Harker Heights apartment from an alleged self-inflicted gunshot wound. I say alleged because... Despite the army ruling Brandon's death a suicide, the family has since come forward to say that they're uncomfortable with the circumstances surrounding his death and they're looking for further answers. No one in the Brown family had heard from Brandon since March 11th, nine days before his death, and they had called the Harker Heights Police Department asking for them to conduct a welfare check several times. According to a statement made by Brandon's family on March 20th, his mother, quote, received two phone calls before the detective called. One phone call she received was informing her the police had gained access to the house, and then the other was a woman telling my mother she needed to get a pen and paper and write down this phone number. It's not good, but you have to hear it. Then the woman went on to say, it's bad, but not that bad. I'm interluding here just to say, what the fuck kind of messaging is that? On March 21st, 
The family arrived in Harker Heights and they were surprised to see two cars on the driveway at Brandon's house. And from my understanding, the cars were not police vehicles. The family stated, quote, two of the siblings got out of the vehicle to see who was at Brandon's house and a man answered the door and quickly pulled the door up to his neck when my siblings stated who they were. He told them and the mother they could not come in because it was an active crime scene. Another vehicle pulled up and a woman got out with an attitude and told my mother the man in the house was correct. It's an active crime scene. He was the only one allowed in the house. The police were called and we got back into the vehicle to wait for them to arrive. While we were waiting, both the male and the female were on the porch laughing, pointing at the car and going in and out of Brandon's house. Neither of these individuals know any of us in the vehicle, but gave statements to the police saying, we were wretched and it could get ugly. The other individual stated she was familiar with the family. Interluding again, what the fuck does any of that mean? The family was wretched? What's got the potential to get ugly? Who was this woman lying about her familiarity with the Brown family? And what the fuck were they doing in Brandon's house? In the same statement, the family shared that, quote, it took exactly a month to release Brandon's body so we could bring him back to Tennessee. They did not allow Brandon's mother or Brandon's father to identify his body. The justice of the peace even tried to pressure my mother into saying that she believed Brandon died by suicide. They were also pushing for cremation. I really don't like these circumstances because they ring really reminiscent of the unsettling themes we saw in episode eight when we focused on the suspicious death of private first class Lavina Johnson. Even if Brandon Brown did die by suicide, what is up with the mysterious strangers at his home on March 21st? What the hell was with that phone call Brandon's mother received on the day they learned of his death? Why were there so many strange details in the aftermath? Not allowing the family to ID the body, taking a month to release it, and pressuring the grieving parents both to state Brandon's death was a suicide and they wanted cremation? I don't like any of it. And unfortunately, shit will only continue to get weird here. On March 23rd, 22-year-old Army vet Michael Wardrobe was shot multiple times and killed by a Fort Hood soldier. Javino Roy has since been charged with his murder and investigators have said all they know about the event is that the two were, quote, involved in a verbal altercation that became physical. Should be noted for those not keeping track at home, this would be the third gun-related homicide in Fort Hood soldiers in the month. Another soldier would join the unknown cause of death crew before the month was over. On March 25th, Specialist Victor Frio is said to have simply, quote, died at Fort Hood. I couldn't find any more details than that. And as far as we know, his death is still being investigated. Again, for those not keeping track at home, that's eight deaths in March alone. Five shootings with one allegedly being a self-inflicted gunshot wound and three other deaths with causes that we know next to nothing about. Those statistics, it goes without saying, are not great. Just one month later, on April 22nd, Specialist Vanessa Guillen would be seen alive for the last time, and the nation's gaze would slowly start turning onto Fort Hood, as the story of her disappearance started to create a growing sense of dread around the base. It became clear that something really was wrong. 
On April 22nd, 20-year-old Vanessa Guillen was last seen in the parking lot of the Regimental Engineer Squadron Headquarters, as she reported to the arms room where she worked at the time at around 1 p.m. It was later discovered she had left her car keys, barracks room key, military ID, and her wallet in her workspace. Prior to her disappearance, Vanessa had been struggling with something. She confided in her mother, Gloria, that she didn't feel safe at Fort Hood. A sergeant who is still yet to be named had been sexually harassing her, and she wasn't the only one this sergeant had targeted. Allegedly, other female soldiers had made complaints about this particular officer, and they'd all been ignored or dismissed. Vanessa even told her mother that part of the reason she felt unsafe was because this harassment had recently taken a more sinister tone. The sergeant had begun following her when she went jogging. According to Gloria, Vanessa, quote, said it was stalking and verbal harassment. He would look at her some type of way that would make any woman feel uncomfortable. Gloria also said Vanessa, quote, felt the base was evil. She even had trouble sleeping at night. Concerned for her daughter, Gloria begged Vanessa to name her, tell her the name of the sergeant. She thought maybe she could make a report as a civilian so Vanessa could avoid any retaliation, but Vanessa refused. She said that she could, quote, take care of it herself, and she promised her mother that she would handle it. Within weeks of this conversation, Vanessa had vanished. The next day, April 23rd, Vanessa would be reported missing by a commissioned officer in her unit. But we, the public, we wouldn't really start hearing about her disappearance for weeks, close to a month for some of us. I know I didn't hear Vanessa's name until probably closer to June, and that was thanks to the social media movement her family and friends had put together. On May 18th, almost a month since Vanessa was last seen, two witnesses came forward. They weren't exactly sure what they had seen, but with the increased scrutiny everyone was giving to their memories of that day in April, they felt they needed to alert somebody to what they had seen. These witnesses reported a sight that had been weird, but not too alarming on or around that April day. An Army specialist by the name of Aaron Robinson had been seen exiting the arms room, struggling with a tough box, an oversized container with wheels. They could tell it was heavy, and they watched as Robinson loaded it into his car before driving away. They hadn't thought much of it then, but given the events since, they realized it was a bit of an odd sight. The very next day, on March 19th, Aaron Robinson himself was called in for an interview. According to the federal affidavit filed by FBI Special Agent Jonathan Varga, quote, a search of PFC Guillen's phone records revealed the last outgoing text message from her phone was a message to Specialist Robinson's phone. Specialist Robinson was one of the last known people to have seen PFC Guillen. In his interview, Robinson claimed that he had merely texted Vanessa that he was in a different arms room and waiting for her to arrive so that she could confirm the serial numbers for equipment that she was working on. According to Varga's affidavit, Robinson claimed he, quote, gave her paperwork and the serial number of a 50 caliber machine gun that needed to be serviced. She left the arms room and he believed she would have gone next to the motor pool. Witnesses at the motor pool, prepared to receive the paperwork from Guillen, stated she did not arrive with the papers. During this interview, Robinson gave permission for his phone to be searched with the use of a universal forensic extraction device. Exactly one month later, on June 19th, Cecily Aguilar would enter the scene. Cecily Aguilar is a civilian, and she is also the wife of another Fort Hood soldier. I don't know what the details surrounding that are, but it should be noted. 
Adultery is ironically, given the frequency with which it happens in the military, it's technically a really serious offense. Serious enough that it can threaten someone's career if they're found to be engaging in an affair. And that's precisely what Aaron Robinson was doing with Cecily Aguilar. In fact, he even claimed that he shared his off-base home with her, saying that she was his girlfriend. Thanks to Robinson giving investigators permission to search his phone, they noticed Cecily's name in his records. A lot. Especially on the night of April 22nd, where his calls to her registered as late as 3.30 a.m. on the morning of April 23rd. And they wanted to know what the hell this was all about. Cecily, in her interview, claimed the calls were because she had misplaced her phone, so Robinson was calling it to help her locate it, who, admittedly amongst us, hasn't used that same tactic before. However, investigators weren't buying it because they could also see the lengths of the calls, and almost all of them lasted for longer than it would take to do a simple call my phone to find it song and dance. They were said to have lasted well over just a minute. It would appear we have a liar on our hands. And Cecily realized that she'd been caught in telling them. When she was interviewed a second time, she admitted as much. She had lied in her first interview. This time, she claimed that she had liked to take long drives to help her cope with things. And that night, she and Robinson had driven out to a park in nearby Belton to, quote, look at the stars. I have to ask, what the fuck does this new story have to do with the various calls Robinson was making to you, Cecily? Like, what benefit does spinning this new tale give you? Because if anything, this sounds even stranger, and it doesn't explain anything about the calls. Investigators thought as much as well, and they started looking at her phone now, where they realized something else odd. Quote, a review of the location data revealed that at approximately 1.59 a.m. April 22nd, Specialist Robinson's cell phone was identified in the vicinity of FM 436 and West Main Street in Belton, Texas, specifically on or around a bridge. Robinson's cell phone then tracked along the Leon River in a northward direction. Cecily's cell phone location data showed that both she and Robinson were near the Leon River on April 23rd for about two hours, and they were shown to have been there again on April 22nd, 26th. On, eight, on June 20th, Texas Rangers started searching the area. By then, though, pieces were already starting to come together behind the scenes. And what was starting to feel like the beginning of the story for the public was closer to the beginning of the end. On that day, the Rangers and the CID, Fort Hood's Criminal Investigation Division, discovered what looked to be a burn site and disturbed earth. In his affidavit, Varga wrote, quote, what appeared to be the burned remains of a plastic tote or tough box were found nearby in an area near where Robinson's phone pinged. But nothing more than that was found. Nothing that would solidify their growing conviction that this was where they would find Vanessa. Nine days later, on June 30th, contractors working near the site, they would find, quote, scattered human remains that appeared to have been placed into a concrete-like substance and buried. The contractors immediately called the CID. And the CID, after confirming what they had suspected, made a call of their own to Cecily Aguilar. On June 30th, Cecily was brought back again in front of investigators, and this time, in the styling of Gretchen Wieners, she cracked. She admitted everything. Robinson had killed Vanessa, beating her to death with a hammer inside the arms room, and then he had called her, confessing what he had done. 
After getting Vanessa's body into the tough box and then into his car, he drove off base and picked up Cecily where she worked at a local gas station. Together, quote, they removed the limbs and the head from the body with a machete or an axe. Robinson and Aguilar attempted to burn the body. However, the body would not burn completely. They placed the dead female in three separate holes and covered up the remains. She also explained why they returned on April 26th, because they didn't think that they'd done an efficient enough job of hiding Vanessa the first time. Quote, they arrived prepared with gloves, hairnets, and a bag of concrete Aguilar had brought from someone using Facebook Messenger. On that date, Robinson and Aguilar uncovered the remains, removed them, and continued the process of breaking down the remains of the dead female. The remains were then burned again, along with their gloves and hairnets. Robinson and Aguilar placed the remains back in the three holes with the concrete purchased earlier. Cecily Aguilar had not only cracked, she also flipped. Robinson had been, quote, confined to his barracks room on the base, and after Cecily had confessed everything, she made a few controlled phone calls and sent texts to an increasingly panicked Robinson. In one text, she wrote, Baby, they found pieces, they found pieces. And in the damning phone call the investigators needed, Robinson, quote, never denied anything that they had done to Vanessa's body. It was during the night of the 30th that Robinson bolted, and the hunt was on. With the help of the Killian police and the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force, they found Robinson in the early morning of July 1st. In a statement made by the Killian chief of police, quote, the suspect was located walking on the 4700 block of East Rancier Avenue. As officers attempted to make contact with the suspect, he produced a weapon and committed suicide by shooting himself. With Robinson dead, Cecily is the only one to have been charged, and it's on one count of conspiracy to tamper with evidence. She, for some reason, pleaded not guilty, which makes no fucking sense, considering she literally fucking confessed to her role in helping Robinson cover up the murder. We know a few things still about why exactly Robinson murdered Vanessa. Some say the motive is that she had discovered the affair that he was having with Cecily, a still-married woman, and the wife of another soldier at that, and that he killed her to both silence Vanessa and to protect his career. Others say it was Robinson who had been harassing Vanessa, but that doesn't entirely make sense. He wasn't her superior. He was only a coworker. And Vanessa was emphatic that her harasser was higher up in her chain of command. There are also questions about that April day in the arms room that haven't been answered. The Guyana family attorney, Natalie Kwam, told CNN that Vanessa's face was so badly mangled, investigators couldn't identify her, and they had to send her remains to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware for identification that was only made by dental records. If the, if the scene was as disturbingly violent as that statement suggests, how did Robinson ever clean up the bloodshed by himself without anyone happening to walk in? and thoroughly enough to warrant no suspicion about what had taken place. Maybe the question that should be asked is this. Did somebody on base help Robinson cover up what he'd done on that day in the armory room? Though Vanessa first went missing in late April, in the weeks leading up to the discovery of her remains, three more deaths would take place. One alleged accident, one death classified as passing away, and one murder. 
On April 29th, Private First Class 19-year-old Joshua Barnwell was, quote, accidentally shot in the head and died of his injuries at a local hospital. That is, much like a few other deaths I've already discussed, literally all I could find about what happened to Joshua. Accident or not, it seems like any publicity the incident received has since been scrubbed from the internet. One link I tried to follow simply just 404'd me. On May 18th, Private First Class Brandon Rosencrantz was found dead in Harker Heights, and four miles away, his Jeep was engulfed in flames. The 27-year-old had suffered four fatal gunshot wounds and was only a few days away from his 28th birthday. It wouldn't be until August that two people would be charged with his death, Brandon Oliverius and Estrelita Falcon. Brandon had apparently befriended the couple just a week or two before he died. According to his parents, he had been lonely and working through the death of a close friend, so he was especially vulnerable. Thomas Berg Sr., his father, said, quote, he was looking for friends and he found the wrong ones. Since the arrest, Oliverius has apparently changed his story at least three times, claiming at points he left Brandon alive when he last saw him, that he shot him when they were returning from a trip to San Antonio that apparently never happened, and in another version of events, Oliverius claimed he killed Brandon because he had tried to rape Estralita. Ultimately, he did say that that last story just wasn't true. Whatever transpired before Brandon's murder, the truth is still unclear. Something odd that Brandon's father noted to reporters, though, is this. Brandon's armor, gas mask, work battery, footlockers, two phones, iPad, and guns, things he was known to keep in his Jeep, are all gone, and they've yet to be found. Almost a week later, while at work on base, 45-year-old Richard Harrington Jr. apparently simply passed away. Given his age, an unforeseen medical event isn't out of the realm of possibility. Again, similarly to Joshua Barnwell's death, though, no details could be found to shed light on what happened. And about a week before Vanessa's remains were found, another missing soldier's remains were found. One who had been missing since August 2019, Private Gregory Weedle Morales. Gregory was last seen alive on the night of August 19, 2019. The 23-year-old was driving his 2018 black Kia Rio, excited about the next day. According to his mother, he was going to be handing in his discharge paperwork, and once that was done, he would be officially discharged from the Army within a few days, and his service would be complete. He would never get the chance to see life after the military, though. That night, as he was driving off base in Killeen, Gregory called his mother. He was asking for some gas money, she said. He later met up with some friends at a local club. The next day, August 20th, was the last contact anyone had with him, though it's not been publicized what that contact was. Despite the fact that he was already in the midst of processing out, the Army deemed Gregory as having gone AWOL, naming him a deserter on September 21st. And the Army doesn't look for deserters. His mother, Kimberly Weedle, claims that his imminent departure from the military might have played a role in the Army's blasé attitude when it came to searching for him. As she put it to Fox 23 News, quote, the military failed him by not looking. They just assumed the worst and let it go. But with only days left until he was discharged, why the hell would he desert? What gave the military any indication he would just peace out and later daze it when all he had to do was wait a few days? Even when his car was found abandoned a short while after he disappeared, the army still didn't consider it an indication something was wrong. 
So much so, they didn't even tell the family about their discovery. In May of this year, it was Gregory's sister who conducted a search for the car, and she was shocked to see that not only had it been found, but it had been sold at an auction in Dallas. It was then that the family learned the car had been found five months earlier in January 2020. Still, though, the Army clung to their story that Gregory had deserted. It wasn't until Vanessa went missing that, amidst all the tips pouring in about her case, did one come in about Gregory. When the Army put out a reward for information about Vanessa's disappearance, the Weedell family argued that Gregory should also have a reward set aside for any pertinent information that came in. On April 30th, the Army posted notice that any information leading to his whereabouts would result in a reward of $15,000. They subsequently upped it to $25,000. Four days after the reward hit the $25K mark, the tip came in. The anonymous caller told Army investigators they could find Gregory, and he was only four miles away. On June 19th, almost closing in on a year since he was last heard from, CID investigators discovered his skeletal remains in a nondescript field off base in Killeen. The Army Times reported the remnants of his clothes were shredded and scattered in the area, and his body had only been, quote, lightly buried in what sounds like the shallowest of graves. Apparently, the debris of the area was all that covered his body as it decomposed. He could only be identified by his dental records, and his mother told the Washington Post officials believed he was shot though no confirmation about his death, cause of death has been released yet. The Army has since come out and removed Gregory from its list of deserters, since it was determined via autopsy that he had died before he was named one on September 21st. Now that they're investigating his death, they also announced that foul play is, somewhat fucking obviously, given the circumstances, suspected. Though again, I feel like I'm a broken record saying this, not much else has been released. Just weeks after both Vanessa and Gregory's remains were found, yet another soldier wound up dead. On July 17th, 26-year-old Private Major Morta would be found near Stillhouse Hollow Lake Dam, about 20 miles from the base. First reports would say that Major was found, quote, unresponsive by a group of fishermen just after midnight. Now, the story has changed to a narrative that the fishermen found Major's already lifeless body at the base of the dam. Officials are still investigating what exactly happened, but they've since come out to say that the, quote, manner of death is consistent with drowning. To that, I say, that's kind of obvious. The real question that needs to be asked is, what led him to drown? His sister, Hazel Morta, told the press that, quote, she's not aware whether her brother ever visited the area, but she does not believe he would go hiking or swimming in the middle of the night alone. So it needs to be asked. What was he doing at the lake by himself in the middle of the night? Why would he be out there in the first place? Was he always alone or did someone go out there with him? Mayor certainly may have died by drowning, but it's the circumstances surrounding how he drowned that need to be examined and accounted for. Because I'm hard pressed to believe he was out on that lake alone in the middle of the night for some random ass nighttime swim. And now... Caught up as we are to the month of August, there have been four deaths in the last four weeks alone. On August 2nd, 24-year-old specialist Francisco Hernandez Bardigas' body was discovered in the same lake where Mayhor was found. His death is still technically under investigation, but it's been reported he was involved in a boating accident gone entirely wrong. 
Allegedly, he fell off of an inner tube and was pulled under the boat. That said, officials have not yet confirmed whether or not foul play is suspected. On August 12th, 22-year-old specialist Cole Jacob Atten was hit by a car within a mile of the Fort Hood gates while, and this is really tragic, he was trying to help other people who had been involved in an accident of their own and was redirecting traffic. It's been reported that the other car simply, quote, couldn't avoid him, which is what caused Cole to be hit. This one, obviously, maybe, isn't some sort of suspicious death or a conspiracy-laden mystery, but I want to note it because, like someone on the Army subreddit said, there are a lot of car accidents and vehicular deaths that take place on, around, and near the base. The very next day, August 13th, another person would die during a land navigation training, bringing all too reminiscent of what happened to Lawrence Sprader in 2007. 36-year-old Texas National Guard Sergeant Bradley Moore, for all we know right now, just died during the training. No details have been released. Thus, his cause of death is still undetermined, though official claims that they will release details as they become available. It's interesting to note that, just the week before Sergeant Moore's death, the Army had quietly delayed the transfer of Fort Hood's command, something that they had set in motion back in April. Major General Scott Efland, instead of heading to Fort Bliss as planned to take over their first armored division, he's sticking around at Fort Hood. While the Command, Culture, and Climate, and Independent Review, organized by Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy, takes place. In an official statement, the Army said, quote, Eflin will remain in command at Fort Hood to continue leading the Fort Hood community during the ongoing independent review of the command climate there. Unofficially, an Army official had this to say, quote, Receiving division commander is a big deal for an Army officer. Anytime there's a delay in taking a command, it's not a good sign. I imagine it bodes even more poorly now, given what we know about the soldier who was found hanging in a tree just days ago. Last Tuesday on August 25th, 23-year-old Sergeant Elder Fernandez was found dead, 28 miles away from Fort Hood after being reported missing on August 19th. The last known sighting of him was on August 17th. In the months leading up to August, Elder had been subjected to harassment, both sexual and in general. He had reported in May that someone in his chain of command had touched him in a sexual nature. After his report was made, Elder was transferred to another unit in order to, according to the Army, quote, ensure he received the proper care and ensure there were no opportunities for reprisals. Except after the transfer, he was bullied and hazed for making his report in the first place, according to Natalie Kwam, who is representing the Guillen family and is now also representing the Fernandez family. His aunt Isabel, speaking to the Beaumont Enterprise, elaborated with, quote, According to his friends, since the transfer happened, they kept harassing him. The person he accused was following. So Elder made his report in May. He was transferred and still suffered abuse. We've since learned that on August 11th, Elder was admitted to Carl R. Darnell Memorial Hospital. But the reason for the hospital stay isn't fully known even by his family. The Fernandezes say that they spoke with Elder every day of the six days he was in the hospital, and though he didn't tell them much about the stay, he claimed that on the Sunday before he went missing, he would video call his mother just the next day so she could see him and see that he was okay. It was only after his body was discovered that the Fernandezes say the Army claims Elder was admitted due to suicidal ideation, but the Army never clarified when Elder was in such a state. 
By the family's account, Elder was, quote, happy in the army and had just renewed his contract through 2024. The storyline of what happened to Elder when he was released is also being brought further into question because the Fernandez's claim a lot of it isn't adding up as easily as it did initially. When he was released on the 17th, allegedly a staff sergeant picked him up and drove him back to Colleen. But there's no record of Elder being signed out by their superior officer, and the Army has refused the family access to the person that they've been told drove their son home. Except he didn't really go home either. Allegedly, the sergeant dropped Elder off at a house on Woodlands Drive in Colleen, where he no longer lived. He had moved out of the house in July. It wasn't even as if he had been dropped off there to pick up his car either because the car was still on base and found there after the fact. His mother says that the people who lived at the Woodlands Drive home didn't see Elder either. Quote, the roommates told us he was never there. Nobody had seen him open the door or get inside the home. Texas EquiSearch even searched that area where Elder was allegedly dropped, and there was no evidence found to suggest that it had ever happened. It gets all the more twisty when midway through this search, the army started saying that they believed Elder left of his own accord, despite their knowing that his car was on base and it was the only vehicle he had access to. On August 25th, a report was called into police. Someone had seen a man near the railroad tracks in Temple, almost 30 miles from Fort Hood. By the time police arrived, this man was in fact a body hanging from a tree and the body was identified as Elder's due to the backpack containing the identification found near the scene. Police stated that it appeared the body had, quote, been there for quite some time. Now, maybe it's just semantics and me, but I'm really curious about this initial report because how does a witness go from seeing, quote, a man near the railroad tracks to the police then finding a clearly deceased body hanging from a tree? It could just be details left out of the report, but that just seems like a really weird situational and descriptive dichotomy because there's a fucking difference between seeing a person or a body. If I see a man, I feel confident in saying that I'm literally looking at a man, most likely walking or otherwise exhibiting signs of life. I, for one, don't think I'd be calling the police to say I see a man when what I'm really looking at is a body hanging from a tree. Which then leads me to ask, was it even Elder this witness saw at all? Were someone else there at the scene where Elder was later found? As of right now, your guess is as good as mine. And it's forcing the Fernandez family, as well as many other people, to seriously question what happened to not only their son, but the many soldiers who have all wound up dead at Fort Hood this year. And let's get into some of those hashtag fucking questions right now. Let's get this one out of the way from the top. Is there a serial killer roaming the base or area surrounding Fort Hood? And I know that sounds fucking Looney Tunes, but it's not too far a stretch to consider, given that at least 17 serial killers throughout history were former or active duty military. Just to name a few, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Jeffrey Dahmer served as a medical specialist in Germany. The Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, was in the Navy during Vietnam, as was Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. Violence begets violence, as the saying goes. Out of all the deaths I just told you about, 
only two have had people charged in their causation. And I'm not counting fucking Aaron Robinson because he wasn't charged even in death. Why haven't investigators found any suspects in the 13 suspicious deaths or charged anyone with the deaths? Why haven't they been given more consideration? Where is what would be crucial video footage for any of these deaths? Why isn't there any video footage? Did Sergeant Sprader really die of exposure to the elements during a routine exercise? Did his being assigned to the Criminal Investigation Division have anything to do with his death? How, or maybe why, did Private Eric Hogan and Private Anthony Peake lose control of their car in their fatal accident? Who shot Private Shelby Tyler Jones, and why? How did his body come to be dumped at the convenience store, miles away from where he was initially shot? Where is that surveillance footage? Because I will be damned if you try to tell me a convenience store doesn't have at least one operating video camera running at all times. What killed Specialist Christopher Sawyer? What killed Sergeant Raul Torres? How is it that two seemingly healthy 20-something military men just drop dead on the same day? Who shot Specialist Freddy De La Cruz and Shaquan Allred? Again, why? Did Brandon Brown really die from a self-inflicted gunshot wound? Who were the two people antagonizing his family when they arrived at his house the day after they received the news of his death? Why did they lie about their connection to the Brown family? Why did the military allow the family to ID Brandon's body? Why did it take a month to release the body? Why were the grieving parents pressured to state that Brandon's death was a suicide? And why were they pressured to opt for a cremation? What caused Specialist Victor Frio's unexplained death? Who was the sergeant that was harassing PFC Vanessa Guillen? Did this sergeant play a role in Vanessa's death? Was the affair that Aaron Robinson was having with Cecily Aguilar really the reason he killed Vanessa? If we're to believe that, though, how would she have even found out about it? If it's also to be believed that Robinson did kill Vanessa in the armory with a hammer, how the fuck did no one notice not just the attack, but would, would also have been an insane amount of blood on army property and grounds? We know from statements made to the public that Vanessa was essentially bludgeoned to death with the hammer that Robinson is said to have used. So we're to believe that this dude murdered Vanessa with a hammer and yet just rocked up and out of the base without so much as a drop of blood on him? That's a clean up job fit for fucking Dexter. So I'm just going to come right out and ask how and who all helped clean up the scene of Vanessa's death? What else does Cecily Aguilar know about Vanessa's death? Why did the army almost immediately assume Private Gregory Morales was a deserter when he had just days left before he was to be relieved of duty? Because the army was in the process of going through the paperwork to separate Morales from duty, is that why they didn't bother searching? Why didn't they tell the Weedell family about finding his car in January, almost five months after he went missing? Who would have killed Gregory and why? Was Private First Class Joshua Barnell's death really an accidental shooting to the head? Or was it something else? And if it's being reframed as an accident, cover that something else up. Why has Private First Class Brandon Rosencrantz's armor, gas mask, work battery, footlockers, two phones, iPad, and guns, things like I said he was known to keep in his Jeep that was set on fire, still not been found? 
Is there something afoot with the fact that Sergeant Mejor Morta was found on the 17th of August, but the news didn't break until five whole days later? I'm sure the family had to be notified and confirmation had to be made, but I still find it odd that we didn't hear news of this for five whole days. What was Mayhor doing at the Stillhouse Lake Dam by himself in the middle of the night? Why would he even be out there in the first place? Was he always alone or did someone go out there with him? How long was Mayhor in the water? Was he found unresponsive as it was first reported or was he already dead by the time fishermen discovered his body as it's since been reported? Who would have or what would be the motive to kill Mayhor? Was Specialist Francisco Hernandez Vargas's death really a freak boating accident gone wrong? What killed Sergeant Bradley Moore during his land navigation training? Why was Sergeant Elder Fernandez hospitalized? Who was the superior who assaulted him? And why is the Army now saying that they can't corroborate Elder's report? Who picked up Elder from the hospital on August 16th? Why did this person allegedly take him to a location that he didn't even live at? Did they actually take Elder there? If we're to believe that Elder just waltzed off the base of his own accord, why did he leave his car behind? And in that same vein, how did he manage to get almost 30 miles away from base? Did the person who called into police about seeing a man see someone else and not Elder like it's been assumed? If it wasn't Elder or Elder's body that this person saw, then who was the other person? Why is Major General Scott Eflin still being kept at Fort Hood despite being assigned to transfer to Fort Bliss months ago? Is there a cover-up going on at Fort Hood? And if so, who benefits most from it? Who or what is killing soldiers at Fort Hood and why? And finally, how many more soldiers have to die in inexplicable circumstances before real action and change is taken to protect them. This is the part in our story where I usually tell you what theories abound about the case we've been discussing, but today I feel like I have a hundred different possibilities I could present to you, but yet at turns it feels like there aren't any concrete theories about what's happening to the soldiers at Fort Hood. On July 2nd, in the midst of the search for Vanessa Guillen, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Representative Jackie Spire spearheaded efforts into investigating the events taking place on base, and they called for an independent investigation into Fort Hood by the Department of Defense's Inspector General. Since then, the Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy has put together, quote, an investigative panel of five individuals to look into the command, climate, and culture on base. It's allegedly part of the reason that Major General Eflin wasn't allowed to leave Fort Hood just yet. The panel consists of four veterans and one former FBI investigator. Speaking to NPR, reporter Rose Thayer shared that these five are, quote, tasked with looking at the command, climate, and culture at Fort Hood to determine if it meets the Army values. And that review is also looking at the Killeen community as well. At the time you're hearing this, on August 31st, there are currently four open inspections or reviews ongoing at Fort Hood. More than just congressional and lawmaker voices are being heard, though. The hashtag I am Vanessa campaign was launched just after she went missing, and it allows for current service members and veterans to share their own accounts of sexual harassment or abuse while in the military. One such woman, Crystal De Los Riosen, wrote this on social media as part of the campaign. Quote, 
I joined the Navy at 19. On my very first deployment, new girl, fresh meat. My entire deployment, I was catcalled and called names, which is what Crystal wrote on the post as part of the campaign. Quote, when verbal turned to physical, I reported it to the chaplain. At that moment is when I understood why the victims before me didn't go through with their report. They were all talked down from it. I went through with mine and they all got a slap on the wrist. One even made chief. I am still fighting this to this day. When all is said and done, one of the few things that is clear is that something has to happen at Fort Hood because things as they stand now cannot continue in the way that they've been allowed to. Texas admittedly benefits a lot from the presence of the federal government in the form of the military having such a presence in their state. There are 25 active military bases throughout the whole state. And just for example, 11 of those military installations are around only San Antonio, and that's just one city. And it goes without saying the Fort Hood community in general relies heavily on the base for the economy and job stability of the civilians in the area. To shut down the base would, simply put, threaten the livelihoods of those civilians as well. Obviously, I also know this, that it would be difficult to shut down any military base and or overhaul the command leadership without so much as a buy your leave, but it's clear something needs to be done. So why hasn't it been? And surely some of these deaths might legitimately be freak accidents. Francisco Hernandez Vargas, for instance, truly may have simply drowned in a boating accident. Joshua Barnell may have tragically been an accidental victim of gun violence. So too might the unexplained passings that feel far too vague be just that, untimely, unpredictable deaths. But given all that we know about what has been happening, all the whispers that are gathering strength in their collective voices, and maybe more importantly, the things we can only guess at having happened, the fact that we find ourselves asking if these events that might normally be seen as tragic accidents and untimely deaths are possibly anything but, I think that says volumes about what Fort Hood has become. When I was debating discussing what's happening at Fort Hood, my decision was decided when I realized one thing. After the initial, what the fuck, of seeing the headline that yet another soldier, this time Sergeant Elder Fernandez, had been found dead, I wasn't that shocked. And that scared me. Whatever is all that's happening at Fort Hood, it's starting to become normalized. And we cannot allow that to happen. As I record this now, I am scared that I'm going to wake up just like I did last week tomorrow to see yet another missing soldier, yet another unexplained death, yet another mark against the soul of Fort Hood. Our soldiers selflessly offer up their lives to serve in the military and protect this country. What does it say about the very organization that they pledge allegiance to, that their deaths on American soil are this numerous and this suspicious? Are they being forsaken by leadership that can't or won't protect its own? Why are we allowing this threat to hover over the base like the dark cloud it is? How many other soldiers have to die before action is taken? While not much else is clear, what is is the fact that something very, very wrong is happening and the lives of American soldiers are at stake in their own country.
there is something rotten in the state of Texas. And whatever it is, it resides at Fort Hood. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Like I said at the top, I really hope that if anything that we've discussed today has unnerved you or unsettled you or upset you, I just hope that you take some time to take care of yourself. I know today's topic was not an easy one to discuss by any means, so please, by all means, take care of your own mental health. I also want to quickly say that I'd encourage anyone who finds themselves troubled by what's all going on in the military or wanting to learn more about this type of case to give episode 8 a listen if you haven't already. In covering the suspicious death of Private First Class Alina Johnson in that episode, I also discussed at length the reputation of Fort Hood and the strange connection the base has to the deaths of several female soldiers overseas and how the military has a pretty terrifying habit of looking the other way, especially when it comes to the deaths of female soldiers that simply don't add up. I'll be sure to discuss more of what we find out about last week's events at Fort Hood on this month's True Crime News Chit Chat over on Patreon later this week. And speaking of Patreon, I want to give a shout out to the newest member of the DA Patreon crew, Alex Buckner. Your support truly means the world, so thank you for helping to keep the figurative DA lights on. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, if you're liking what you're hearing, you should, and I'd love it if you did, leave a rating and review for the podcast over on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at Dark as Hell Podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head over to patreon.com slash Dark as Hell Podcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. This month has been chock full of extra content for the Dot Patreon crew, including an exclusive episode about my own hometown murder and a rousing discussion about what the hell is happening to Britney Spears for this month's Wine and Weirds live stream. Truly, you don't want to miss any of this, so come be a part of Da Patreon crew. Patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.